The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. David Bowie was born on January 8th, 1947, and he died two days after he turned 69 on January 10th, 2016. As this week marks the anniversary of both those days, we're spending this episode talking about those golden years, the overall sound and vision of David Bowie. I'm James Van Alstel, and as they pulled him out of the oxygen tent, he asked for the latest party. He is John Manley. Hey, if you're under financial pressure, go to Wintrust.com for information and locations. I see what I did there with the whole <laughs> pressure thing. Uh-huh. I wrote that for you. This week, you. The, history of, <laughs> the History of Alternatives celebrates the history of David Bowie, a man whose musical and image reinventions and innovations over five decades paved the way and set the example for anyone who's ever created what we call alternative music. John, right at the very beginning of his career, back in 1969, we got Space Oddity. The, the song title, an obvious play on 2001, A Space Odyssey. The release of that was held back so that it coincided, the record company back then held it back to coincide with the Apollo 11 mission in 69. Now think about this, knowing what we know about Bowie, knowing what we're about to talk about, Space Oddity made him kind of a novelty artist at the time. It was kind of this... He, he wasn't taken seriously because it was, well, it was you know, tied into the Apollo mission. Yeah, and well, and, and knowing, like you said, like what we know now of Bowie, for his first kind of breakout song to kind of be about, you know, blasting off into space is really pretty serendipitous, right? Because, I mean, I've always considered David Bowie to be the closest thing to an alien as we've ever experienced. And I mean that in the most flattering way possible. You know, he doesn't think like us normal humans and that's should be commended. So it is kind of impressive and, and, and really bizarre to think that, you know, his very first song really was about, you know, floating off into space, which is incredible. And when you think about first impressions, Bowie was tagged as a one hit wonder that happens so often in music. I, the, the first example that came to my mind to my mind was Radiohead. They put out Creep when Pablo Honey came out. No one took him seriously. It was just this novelty band. They, oh, they're the creep band. Sure enough, one album later, they delivered the bands, and then they absolutely turned music upside down with their next few albums. I, I think that's very much a trajectory similar to what David Bowie set off on. I mean, as a, as a high school freshman who uh, discovered the song Creep right when you start having those weird girl emotions, I would argue that I never thought they were going to be a one-hit wonder, but I do know what you're, I do know what you're saying completely. Actually, uh, Radiohead, actually, their, their career trajectory is very Bowie-esque. Good call on that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, like, can you imagine your first song ever being one of the most important songs like of all time like that goes on anyone's i mean put a number on it right like top 100 top 200 whatever alternative songs or even just songs in general and it's like the first thing you did right you could you wouldn't fault them for being a one-hit wonder right i mean radio had the same way like if creep is all they're known for pretty good well done yeah bravo pretty good so we're we're gonna jump around a little bit yeah who knew it was gonna become like the beginning of what was to come. It's incredible. Five, five decades worth of music and innovation. Jumping ahead a little bit, the next hit, so to speak, uh, top 10 record in the UK for Bowie was Starman, 1972. And I want to focus on this year because when you think about how prolific David Bowie was, this year has to just leap off the page. That was the year when we got the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. 
That same year, he contributed to Lou Reed's Transformer album, which was Lou's big solo record post Velvet Underground, Walk on the Wild Side. We also got the single John, I'm Only Dancing. That was just, that was like a B-side. That was a single. That wasn't even on an album until Changes One came out. Also that same year, Bowie gave, just gave the song All the Young Dudes to Mount the Hoople. Mount the Hoople was kind of in dire straits. They were, they were pretty much ready to call it a day. Bowie offered to give him a song. The first song Bowie offered Mount the Hoople was Suffragette City. Mount the Hoople passed on that, which sounds insane, but they took all the young dudes. That was the right play in hindsight, because that's one of those major all-time rock anthems. I mean, if you're choosing between the two, but like, oh my God, could you imagine, you know, like imagine um, Nirvana coming up to you or, you know, and going like, hey, listen, um, we were going to do Smells Like Teen Spirit or uh, I don't know, Lithium. You can, you know what? Take them. Go for it. (laughs) Like What? (laughs) Like giving away massive hits. It's insane. Well, he, I mean, obviously he didn't know it was a hit at the time, but this well, is a right. song he, he wrote for Mott. And yeah, that was, it, it, to this day, I mean, those those words still ring out. Wendy stealing clothes from unlocked cars. Freddie's got spots from ripping off stars from his face. Funky little boat race. The television man is crazy. I think to me, though, that era, more than the music that came from it uh, with Bowie, is what he did to the culture of that time. You know, um, he's the crown jewel of glam rock. Like Ziggy Stardust is the king of glam, right? And it was such a theatrical departure. I don't know if anyone had ever seen anything like that. At well, I, that dis- I disagree. I, I think T-Rex set the stage. Sure, and- sure, sure. I'll give you that. But like the level that he took it is really crazy to me. And and for him to kind of, you know, he, he, he started getting traction and then he built this character and this character. And I always wondered, like, if that was, if that made it easier for him to fully, um, <laughs> pun intended, I suppose, embrace the strange, right? Where it's like, it doesn't have to be, you know, David Jones doing this. This is, mm-hmm. you know, this is this is Ziggy. And I think, you know, later in his career, you know, he, well, I mean, I guess a year and a half later, that's the other crazy part is like Ziggy didn't last that long either. You know, like you think of this as like this major thing. And then you look back on the timeline of all of it and you're like, that was a year and a half. (laughs) The thing that is so impressive, he, he was ever shifting, ever changing, ever evolving. He put that character down. He old yellered Ziggy, Ziggy Stardust to keep moving forward. As an artist, he could have coasted on Ziggy for years. And yeah, just- I, I, I've always wondered, like, do you think he um, do you think it was a I want to go into a different direction? Or do you think it was a um, a case of was Ziggy getting too big for him to handle? I'm sure the answers are floating all over the Internet and biographies. I would imagine he just wanted to keep moving forward, didn't want to get pigeonholed as this thing, this glam rock icon. He had other things to do, other statements to make. He had Aladdin Sane in his back pocket. As we talk about prolific behavior and creative output, think about how long of a period there is between albums in the present day. And albums aren't even as important as they were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But two to three albums is not unusual. 
between artist releases. 70, 71, he puts out Hunky Dory. 72, he puts out Ziggy. 73, he puts out two albums. He puts out Aladdin Sane and an album of covers, pinups. And in between it all, he's doing these things with Lou Reed. He's touring. That's just, it's exhausting to think about. It, it, there's no comparison in the modern day. <laughs> uh, in the 70s, I think he released 15 records, right? In a decade? Maybe. Can you, bands don't release singles that prolifically at this point, right? One for song, sure. let alone <laughs> albums worth of materials. And for him to... I'm always struck by the fact that he became these, like he's so definable by who he wanted to, like he changed himself every three years, reinvented himself and never really, I mean, you can argue this, but like never really lost his fastball. Right. You know, I mean, to go from David Bowie and really start to find yourself and then go, all right, now I'm going to be this character. And that goes nuclear, right? And then he goes, I'm going to stop this now. I'm going to, I'm going to be this other character, Aladdin Sane. And then that happens and it's great. And then he goes, no, 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 now I'm going to be Thin White Duke. And it's like, through all of this, it's, it's such an interesting, it almost plays like a, 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 like a theater play, right? In a sense. There's so many acts to him and it's, it's so incredible. And it's even crazier when you see it on a timeline and you realize that this all happens so fast so fast uh, by the way he did lose his fastball in 1984 or if you're not buying that for sure he lost the fastball in 1987 but we'll get there <laughs> well let's 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 go let's throw some give him his flowers first and then we can <laughs> we can tear him down when we get to and understand i'm coming at this as a fan <laughs> i mean bowie's been probably a top five artist for me since i was like 10 years old so uh, I, yeah. I've been a lot on this ride since childhood. Yeah. I mean, for me too, it's, it's David Bowie. Um, you know, it's, I'm not even embarrassed to say like, I didn't know who he was until the labyrinth and I was a kid and the labyrinth happened. And I was like, who is this weird person? He's so, I I'm like, when we were prepping for this podcast, like I'm all, I, it really stopped me dead in my tracks that like, I was a kid when that movie came out and like, I wasn't old enough to really, care about like androgyny or like have any concept of him other than he should have just been a bad guy in a movie right but even at a young age i looked at that and, and, and i was drawn to him for whatever reason i, I don't know why you for know every reason for every well reason. right for every reason right but it was like it's such an incredible thing that like he could just jump off of any page whether it was through music or through his film or i mean just watch a youtube video and you're like, whoa, like this guy is something. Speaking you know? of Labyrinth, earlier before we started recording this, I went on my own Facebook page, James Van Ossel, and I asked what people's favorite Bowie songs were. I unfollowed for 30 days two people who said Magic Dance from the Labyrinth soundtrack. <laughs> in a world trying where, at that point. <laughs> well, no, you're, tr you're trying and failing. In a world where there are no wrong answers, that's actually the wrong answer. That's underground shimmy down anything off the labyrinth soundtrack should never be your favorite david bowie song so i'll, I'll see what they have to say 30 days Can confirm now. yeah so around valentine's <laughs> i mean to each their own i mean yeah totally okay so we're going through 
uh, Ziggy, The Rise and the Fall. Then we get to Thin White Duke. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're skipping stuff. You're, we're we're okay. going to stop. Bring us back. Bring us back. One of my all-time favorite Bowie albums came out in 1974. And we'll, we'll talk about favorite Bowie albums throughout this recording. But Diamond Dogs came out yep. that year, which is this dark, dystopian-tinged release. It gave the world Rebel Rebel, but it also gave the world 1984 and Big Brother. I mean, this was originally themed to be a 1984 Orwellian-type concept record. It also has one of my top five all-time Bowie songs, which is really three songs combined into one. It is Sweet Thing Candidate, Sweet Thing Reprise. This very cinematic, very ghoulish-sounding, creepy, chilling, again, dystopian song that, that is Bowie- at the peak of his creative powers in that era, I think. That, that album still holds up to me. That riff from Diamond Dogs, and oh my God, the riff from Rebel Rebel, forget it. That is just you know, quintessential David Bowie, 1974. Yeah. We'll get more into Rebel Rebel uh, later down the road when we start dissecting our favorite tunes, but I, I agree with you 100%. And the interesting thing about that song, like, or that album is you talk about its reference to 1984. That was originally supposed to be like literally a 1984 like a company piece but he couldn't get the rights to the to 1984 right which is like wow i'm always i don't know concept albums to me are weird because i (laughs) i don't generally like a lot of them (laughs) um but when they're done right it's really mind-blowing how like how can a like okay computer from radiohead to me is one of those where it's like how can how can you keep a thread going for 45 minutes like that's incredible you know but songs can still live on their own and not be wrapped up in what the concept is right like that's crazy to me david bowie obviously the live show is something that people will always talk about the theatrical props the concepts he put out the same year as Diamond Dogs, his first live album, David Live. Not a fan, but it's worth noting because it was this big double record. Uh, I think it was killed by Earl Slick. Earl Slick, the guitarist on that record, one of many longtime colleagues of Bowie's. I do not think he is the best Bowie guitarist by, by a long shot. And I, there are songs and moments that I love on that David Live record. Uh, but it still is kind of tough for me to listen to. I'm not loving that. Anyway, the year after that, talking about changing direction, from 1974, we moved to the Plastic Soul period. We moved to Young Americans. We moved to a massive, massive U.S. hit for Bowie with fame and the title track and a little help from John Lennon. And a little bit of a change of sound for Bowie where we kind of started to embrace R&B and dance a little bit more. I mean, it was always elements of it through his entire career, but this was kind of the moment where he started to go down the path of R&B. And I mean, imagine being able to call out John Lennon and be like, hey, do you want to go make a tune real quick? And he's like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'm just down the street. Let's go do it. And, it and that's exactly like, what happened. That's yeah. exactly what happened. Like the there, odds of that is incredible. It's crazy. And the courage to actually cover a Beatles song on that album. He covered Across the Universe on Young Americans. To, to cover a Beatles song in the presence of John Lennon, that, that's confidence and swagger, the likes of which we can't understand. That's only David Bowie could possibly pull that off, right? <laughs> right? Like, only he would 
be willing to go, yeah, just stay there. Let me just do this real quick. Tell me what you think when I'm done. <laughs> As a disclaimer to anyone listening, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Drugs are harmful. They can destroy lives. That said, one of David Bowie's greatest periods, his most creatively exciting periods, happened when he was just whacked on drugs, when he was cocaine addicted. 1976 gave us, I mentioned Diamond Dogs, another absolute classic, one of my favorite Bowie albums, Station to Station, an album he really doesn't remember making because he was so whacked out. And this album is nothing short of a masterpiece. There's, there's a, boy, you don't want to like promote drugs, that's for sure. But man, there's a madness in what he was doing in that era that is pretty incredible. <laughs> pretty incredible. And then even like following that, in his attempt to kind of clean himself up, he goes to Berlin and then, you know, the Berlin era begins. Exactly. Let's say on Station to Station just for yeah, one second, because the title track on that album, it, not a typical Bowie song by a long shot. It's a 10-minute long song, 10 minutes and 15 seconds so song. And this is, this is a journey. It starts with this slow, deliberate momentum, this train chugging along a track. And it just it talks about the thin white duke throwing darts in lover's eyes. And then it explodes. It goes out in different directions. Then it pulls itself back in. It is as sweeping and as beautiful and as cool and as edgy as Bowie ever has been. And, and that song is, is such an education uh, as to how to write and perform a song. I, th if that album had only been the title track, that would have been great. But coming out of that, you get Golden Years, which is about as indispensable a Bowie single as you could ever find. It's one of them, man. That's, that's, a, that's on the best of, no doubt about it. And then following all of this, he goes and starts making movies, right? I and mean, he's always kind of dabbled, but now he gets his first real big, I guess it would be his first real big starring film role, would yeah. you say? Like, yeah. And that's The Man Who Fell to Earth. And that, that's a, a theme, the concept he would fall back into or, or re-explore at the very end of his life with the Lazarus stage production. But yeah, he be, he threw himself into movies. You mentioned Labyrinth. Uh, you mentioned, well, we didn't really talk about Broadway, but I mean, that same, just you know, four years after that, he was doing The Elephant Man right. on Broadway. He, he was John Merrick. And he did Jesus Christ Superstar as well, right? Don't know about that. He was in The Last Temptation of Christ. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. That's right, that's right, that's right. He played Pontius Pilate in Last Temptation at the end of the 80s. But yeah, he, he, he was a fantastic actor, which, which makes sense. When you, when you listen to him and you see him on stage, well, of course the dude knows how to act. He knows how to present himself and throw himself into a role. Of course he, he was able to transition. I mean, it kind of seems, you know, he's been acting his whole career, basically. Right. Again, all the characters and, and the live show, which is, you know, the live shows actually almost uh, bankrupted him is because they were so elaborate and ridiculous and the price is so high. I think that was right at the end of, ooh, when was that? Like the end of Ziggy where it was like he, ha he realized he had absolutely no money and they canceled they end up canceling shows in London. And that's how he found out where he's like, why are these shows being canceled? And they're like, you can't afford them. And he kind of looked and said, why can't I afford them? And they're like, uh, you're broke dude. <laughs> and then I think he kind of realized like, Oh, I sort of have to pay attention to this now, which has to be a drag considering when you can live free and 
just all you have to do is create and everything will take care of itself to now all of a sudden go, you know, find out that, that you can't pay your gas bill. Right. Like, ugh, that's gotta be rough. <laughs> you, you mentioned the Berlin era. All right, James, tell me about the Berlin era. We talked about 1972. What a, what a moment in time that was for David Bowie, the Berlin era, those three albums we're talking about low heroes and lodger. Bowie moved off to Berlin, West Berlin, uh, shared an apartment with Iggy Pop. That period, besides giving us those three Bowie albums, gave us those two Iggy solo albums, The Idiot and Lust for Life, which are, to this day, Iggy's defining works. He's sure he's done lots of cool stuff since, but those albums that Bowie helped with are extraordinary. The title track of Lust for Life, you get songs like Night Clubbing, uh, uh, 16, Some Weird Sin, just so much fun time just quintessential Iggy pop. And that was because of Bowie's influence. So Bowie went to work with producer Brian Eno, who's worked with everybody from, you know, talking heads to Roxy music and and so on. And these albums are extraordinary low. The the first of the three uh, at the time wasn't considered as influential, revolutionary, life-changing as it is now it's instrumental. It's weird. It's certainly as far from pop as Bowie got it, songs like speed of life and instrumental and breaking glass, two minutes of, of weirdness, not exactly radio, radio friendly, not exactly mainstream friendly sound and vision. However, was on this album. And that's the one that kind of cut through and made a connection with the general public, but this is arty. It's inventive. And it really established you know, coming off a record like young Americans a couple years prior Bowie still had plenty of edge and a, a fertile mind to, to pull from. It, it's extraordinary stuff. And I think, it, you know, it's the moment where Bowie really deserves a, a ton of praise as a producer because, you know, he did the Iggy stuff and he was basically Iggy's backing band through that as well. And for him to kind of disappear and again, it changed direction. And again, just come back with brilliance. It, it's, all, it's really not fair in, <laughs> in a sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's like I'm going to be glam and then I'm going to be R&B and then I'm going to be pop and then I'm going to be dance and then I'm going to do like a little art house phase. And like the art house phase is incredible. <laughs> you know, right. like that's usually where you go and you go, I'm going to release a solo record that's like four tracks, but it's, they're all 55 minutes long. And it's just sounds, um, I mean, it's Brian Eno, for God's sakes. And instead, you get lust for life and you get heroes. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, heroes to this day, one of the all-time great rock songs, period, full stop. That's as good as it gets. And such a, such a majestic sounding song. When I, uh, when I get pulled out of the stands at a White Sox game to pitch the game seven ninth inning, uh, because all of the players have somehow mysteriously fallen ill. Um, and I strike out the last batter to win the World Series. I expect heroes to play. I don't want we are the champions. I want heroes. <laughs> Makes sense to me. So at the end of this trilogy was the album Lodger. The songs felt a little more pop savvy, but they're weirder than any of the two albums before. Fantastic Voyage is a strange one. African Night Flight is nuts. It, it's just a nuts sounding song also on that album dj i'm surprised you wouldn't walk out to dj by bowie 
be the the cliche. That would radio be my guy. wrestling intro. Yeah, that'd there be for the wrestling intro. <laughs> uh, look back in anger. I mean, some of these songs made it to his live shows and stayed there for a while, like "Look Back in Anger." But it, it was a weird and wonderful way to kind of wrap up that three song cycle. I mean, "Heroes" was the in between record, and this yeah. is all back to back. "Low" was seventy seven. "Heroes" was seventy seven. Then we got the two year break before Lodger. Also, let's let's just take one second to acknowledge the fact that also in the middle of all of all of this, he goes and does the really one of the most uh, WTF moments in the history of music. David Bowie shows up on the Bing Crosby Christmas special. Yeah, and does Little Drummer Boy, and it was amazing. Like it was really, it's really great. That that really is one of the one of the first of those one-offs we got from Bowie over the next 10 years. Not really album tracks, but him turning up with interesting people. And we, we just keep going down that road. There was Under Pressure in 1981, which today is you know classic rock radio staple. There was his collaboration with the Pat Metheny group. This is not America, which was for the movie. This is not America. His duet with Mick Jagger doing Dancing in the Street. He did a lot of these, where did that come from, collaborations? And that really kind of touched it off, that, that Bing Crosby duet which is a very bizarre touching point when you look back and think about it right <laughs> like that's random <laughs> two icons who you couldn't imagine intersecting and these days i think things like that collaborations like that are more expected or understood back then back in the late 70s that was just nuts well you know the, that's what makes it so crazy is that we do expect those kind of things now but in a sense, even now, you wouldn't expect it from that far apart because that's such an old guard, get off my lawn moment for Bing Crosby. Like that era is so, like if it was a Beatle, I could see it. But like the guy who dressed up as a woman on his album cover, right? You wouldn't ever expect a guy like Bing Crosby to be like, yeah, bring him aboard. So for me, Bowie's... Best albums come down to Diamond Dogs, which I mentioned in 74, Station to Station in 76, and then in 1980, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. To me, that, that is his last true masterpiece. Yes, there was plenty of good stuff afterward, but this start to finish was the last true, complete, unquestionable, you can't come at this one, perfect Bowie record. Yeah, I would agree with that 100% because, and, and to me, like this is kind of the moment in his career where any correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like this was the moment where Bowie went from like a, a, a massive rock star to like a massive person, you know, like this was like the culmination and all of a sudden he was just bigger than anything. He was bigger than his music at this point. Right. When like that, and, and maybe that's just, you know, my take on it, but I feel like from, from this point forward, he was Bowie and it wasn't as much about the music that came after this point, but it was about like the, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like the full circle, like he's a legend now. Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid, I was a very young kid when this album came out. Very, very young. I don't, I don't want to date myself, but I feel like I already have very young kid. And I remember watching the 10 o'clock news in Chicago and they were doing a segment on fashion and they set it to fashion from David Bowie from the, from this album. And I remember as a kid thinking 
that is the coolest sounding song I've ever heard. And it certainly sounded way different from anything that I'd heard up until that point. This album, if you play it today, I, I played it for my children uh, who are, you know, who are my age when I first heard it too. It still sounds dangerous. It still sounds like it has edge. It still sounds contemporary, which is no small feat for an album that is 40 years old. It still sounds brand new. When I was getting into music, the first two artists I vividly remember, Beatles aside, because everyone I feel starts with the Beatles just because. Um, it was it was Prince and it was Bowie. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was, you know, it's interesting because you get through this phase of Bowie and Bowie and Prince were kind of in the same world sonically at this point. So for me, discovering Bowie at that age and, 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 and in that era, it's always, a, it was really interesting when I got old enough to be smart and go back and discover, you know, you know, you get to the age where you're like, I want to learn more about these people mm-hmm. and going backwards. So this is kind of where I start with Bowie would, and would I went say, backwards. Would you say you're going up the hill backwards? Oh, very good. Well played there, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, so to go from, you know, uh, under pressure and let's dance and to make it all the way back down to, you know, heroes. And you're like, whoa, this guy went everywhere. And, it, and, and, and this was the culmination, like the, the point where it was like, to me, and again, it's kind of, I discovered him at this point. So he'll never be bigger than he was at that moment. Right. But just an incredible piece of art. And, and again, for the like 15th time in his career, he just goes and pivots and still creates a masterpiece. It's really incredible. So you mentioned let's dance. That was, I I think that was the moment where Bowie elevated to what you were talking about earlier, where he became, he was an MTV star, like a superstar. He was just, his brand was bigger than his catalog at that point. He, He just, these songs, the title track, let's dance modern love, you can't overstate how big these were in the moment. The album came out in 1983, super huge success. I, I'm trying to pull up album number or album sales numbers right now. Um, yeah. In the United States, platinum, which means sold a million copies in similar performance all around the world. Stevie Ray Vaughan's on that record. That's Nal, right. Nal Rogers produced it who's gone on to do some stuff too. And back then was doing chic Uh, Carmine Rojas on bass. I mean, the band was just as good as it gets. What was interesting was it wasn't all new material. Bowie kind of leaned a little bit on previously released stuff. He did his own version of China girl, which he did with Iggy pop back in 77. And he redid a song called cat people, which was the, song theme song or lead song from the soundtrack to the movie cat people the soundtrack version is more brooding i think and cooler this is a more up-tempo take and it has its own charms too but it wasn't i mean it, the, the album's only eight songs long but it turned out to be a monster release for bowie and let's dance this seven and a half minute song was a huge hit there was of course an edit that was played on pop radio but there are a lot of stations which at the time we're, we're going all in with the full seven and a half minute version of that song. 
which is kind uh, of unusual. Now, nowadays, we call those P songs in the business. Those were uh, bath and break tunes. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Back for in sure. <laughs> but Question that, for you. Yeah. What decade do you think Bowie was more famous in? 70s or 80s? I think the 80s. But would you say his, what decade was he more prolific in? Well, the 70s, for sure. But right. we're going we're gonna to keep advancing up and down the, the Bowie timeline. He's done stuff in every decade that, that is noteworthy, game-changing, innovative. It, it's never like he stopped being David Bowie. But there were peaks and valleys in terms of popularity and fame and all that. Uh, I definitely think thanks to MTV, thanks to the Let's Dance album, the 80s were peak awareness of Bowie. I mean, he, I played li- he played Live Aid. I mean, he was doing movies. He did the Labyrinth movie in, in the 1980s, which was so huge. Uh, you know, everyone loved the Goblin King. But what I wanted to mention coming out of um, Let's Dance, that tour, the Serious Moonlight tour, gave us, I think, one of the all-time great concert films. And eventually it was released as an audio recording. The Serious Moonlight movie. When I was a kid, John Manley... I would rent this for my local video store. It was video headquarters in Skokie. I probably rented it 10 times on VHS. Me and my friends would watch it start to finish. It opened with look back in anger. And it had all these, at the time, deep pulls from the Bowie library. It had breaking glass from Lowe. It had what in the world from Lowe. Uh, cracked actor from Aladdin Saint. And these were really cool theatrical performances. The band was great. I love this. I was so excited when it was re- released as an audio version a few years back because I, this, was, this was a big part of my childhood, this live performance. And that was my first time when I was a kid hearing the song White Light, White Heat. I'd love to, okay. tell, you that I, I'd love to tell you that I grew up listening to the Velvet Underground. I didn't. I, I, I fell backwards into them. I started with Lou Reed's solo and, and worked backwards to uh, the Velvets. That was my first exposure was Bowie's version of White Light, White Heat oh, from I that performance. I can make you feel a lot less bad about that being your entrance point to the Velvet Underground because for for me, <laughs> this is so bad. It was uh, who did the song uh, that that took the uh, Walk on the Wild Side um, the uh, the baseline? Was that Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Was that who oh, did no. that? That was my first. I was like. I like was listening to the radio and like, that's, you know, that's a velvet underground thing. And I was like, it is, who's that? And then that, that's, I, not I there, you know? <laughs> that's not velvet underground. That's not velvet underground. That's Lou Reed. I know still. It will. So then Lou Reed leads into for me, velvet underground, which is, Got it. you know, as a, a child of the nineties, I feel bad about that, but also not terrible. Cause I did go back at least and do my homework. So <laughs> thankfully I got well there eventually. It's just an embarrassing way to get there. <laughs> just to stay on the velvet underground topic for, one more minute. I think one of the all-time, all-time greatest songs in the in the history of uh, this. I guess I don't even know if we can call it alternative. In the history of rock and roll, is the song "Rock and Roll" by the Velvet Underground. Just that, that concept that someone's life was saved by rock and roll. Um, she couldn't believe what she heard at all. Not at all. She started dancing to that fine, fine music. You know, her life was saved by rock and roll. We've all been there. We've all been that character in that song. It's a an atypically up-tempo song for Velvet Underground, and it still it still makes a connection with me. That was like 1969 when that one came out. 
truly one of those bands that everyone tells you that you have to like them. So you kind of don't want to, and then you listen and you're like, Oh yeah, I get this. Oh yeah. I mean, it, some of it does sound dated to be fair. Some of the sure. velvet stuff sounds dated to modern listening, but you can see how that touched off everything that, that followed. So we talked earlier, you said that you know, Bowie never lost his fastball. John Manley, David Bowie lost his fastball in 1984 with the release of the album Tonight. Boy, that really coincides with the point where I go, uh, I don't recognize a lot of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you're right. <laughs> so Tonight came right after Let's Dance. It was literally like a year later. And whereas Let's Dance had a couple of recycled songs that Bowie reconfigured for that album, this was all about unoriginal content he did a couple more iggy pop songs he did dancing with the big boys and uh tumble and twirl and neighborhood threat and uh tonight the song tonight which was from lust for life that was interesting on the album because it became a duet with tina turner which was moderately successful for him the coolest song on the album is loving the alien it's the song that opens it up it's another lengthy song it's like a seven minute song it's it's weird it sounds a little 80s to modern listening but that was the cool dark artistic david bowie we were hoping for the rest of the album I, honestly is a letdown i blue jean was a top 40 song it, it, that did well cool video but the album feels like a toss-off it feels like he was you know fulfilling a, a contract obligation it didn't feel like something important. And previously, every Bowie release has felt, had felt important. This is big. This is a Bowie release. This was just, eh, okay, it's tonight. Yeah, and I mean, for someone who was <laughs> five to ten years ahead, I feel like the world catches up to Bowie. He's one of those people, right, where, where you're, he's so far ahead of the game that sometimes it takes a while for the game to catch up to him. And after, you know, 15 years of just redefining the world, maybe he could take a breath. And it kind of started getting more into acting, right? I mean, he kind of started just doing more, I don't want to use the term celebrity things, because that's not the right way to put it, but he just kind of expanded his, I guess, he just became a bigger persona, which again, after... 15 to 20 years and then this also coincides with the rise of mtv where now it's not just a a, a picture on uh, a record sleeve it is he's in your living room four times a day and there's interviews available at the touch of your you know fingertips and all of these things where he almost got bigger than the music at this point in time to me but again, I was like a kid in the 80s. He was more of a superstar than an actor. Like, I could tell you all about David Bowie and not name you a lot of his songs in that era. Well, the absolute low point, in my opinion, the, the, the rock bottom musical moment happened in 1987. It was the release of Never Let Me Down. And this is an album that Bowie himself said he wished he'd spent more time working on, that he wished he had spent more time with the production and, and making these songs better. This is a very eighties cheese ball production. The tour that went along with it, the, the glass spider tour was a bloated, almost this was just past the era of spinal tap 
in its theatrical release, it felt like a Spinal Tap tour. It was my first time seeing Bowie live. I, I can't tell you how excited I was to see Bowie live. I was I actually went with, I think, a, like a 101 degree fever. Like I was so sick, but I wasn't going to miss it. By the way, try doing that in 2021. You'd be arrested for that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Peter Frampton was the guitarist on the tour. It just, it felt big and stupid to me. It felt like a Broadway production. Um, Up the Hill Backwards, a song I referenced earlier, just was goofy. It was like watching an Andrew Lloyd Webber play. And it was built around this, this song, the spoken word thing, I Never Let Me Down, called Glass Spider. It just, it was such a misstep. I think even Bowie realized he'd gone too far trying to be David Bowie that he had to rein himself back in. We didn't get another solo album from Bowie for another six years after that one. You know, as someone who is unabashedly anti-80s, the fact that you called this uh, big and stupid, I feel kind of sums up the decade to me personally. Uh, <laughs> so uh, if, if it's all right with you, I just want to get to the Nine Inch Nails part because that is like the coolest thing of all time. <laughs> We'll get there, but we should acknowledge Tin Machine happened. I, I think it's coming off of Never Let Me Down and before Black Tie, White Noise, I think Bowie realized the need to take things down to their, to their core, to remember what it's like to be in a band, to remember what it's like to just be a musician for music's sake. And I, the Tin Machine albums, I think, are spotty. They're not perfect, but I appreciate what, what the aim was. I appreciate the intent there. And there's still a couple songs that are, are solid. And some of the songs he, he played off and on until the end. Let's jump to 1995, the Outside album. Because, yes, that was the, the album that gave us the tour, the co-headlining tour with Nine Inch Nails. Which was my re-entry point into David Bowie. And again, that's right around the time, now I'll age myself, that's right around the time when I started getting really into music. And uh, I think we discussed on a podcast before how like I was a really big Nine Inch Nails nerd <laughs> during that era. So whereas the Bing Crosby and David Bowie collabo was like, what in the hell's going on here? This one felt like... I mean, that's biscuits and gravy, man. That is peanut butter and jelly, right? Yes, it's, it's peanut butter and jelly. It's biscuits and gravy. Uh, did, you see that, did you see that tour? It was, it, locally, it was at the, uh, whatever the venue is in Tinley Park or whatever that was called back then. Maybe it was the world. It was, it was unlike anything I've ever seen because the two artists overlapped. The two sets overlapped. So at the end of Nine Inch Nails set and before Bowie's set, they came together. They did Subterraneans, Scary Monsters, Reptile, Hello Space Boy, which is a new song then, and Hurt. I mean, just the, the idea of those two, this up-and-coming icon, Trent Reznor, this legit, no-kidding icon, David Bowie, on stage together. Oh, my God. That was about as cool as it gets. There is a, there's an amazing moment in the latest episode of Song Exploder on Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an episode about Trent Reznor and, and Hurt. And uh, there's, it's amazing when he's talking about it. And it goes into you know, the downward spiral and being on tour with Bowie. And um, you know, Trent Reznor is sitting there and he kind of goes like, you know, one minute... <laughs> One minute, you know, I'm listening to David Bowie's records and he inspired me to do all of this. And the next minute, not only am I on tour with him, but he's singing my song. Yeah, I, I can't mean, imagine. That's got to be 
the most insane thing that could ever happen to you, right? right? Like your hero is, is, it's like me doing this podcast with you, my friend. It's, oh, I, stop. I grew up idolizing James and Oswald and here I am with you. It's amazing. But like that was, I felt like that was like the reintroduction of Bowie as this kind of dark, mysterious, not big 80s, let's dance, but like, oh, that's right. Bowie's weird and, and mysterious and dark. Well, the, and, the album Outside was weird, mysterious, and dark. It was a very not commercial release. Right. And, and for me, this was the point where I said, all right, Bowie's cool. I need to learn more about this. You know, like, oh, this, you know, it was originally, it was, oh, that's the dude from the labyrinth. I, I, what, what does he do? And then it was, oh, hell, like, oh, my God, there's, I need to do a lot of, I need to spend a lot of time at the record store, you know, begging them to let me use their CD player in the back to just listen to stuff, right? So here's why radio sucks. Not that it sucks, but sometimes it sucks. We had an opportunity to interview David Bowie backstage at this show. It was originally turned down, and I put up, a fuss behind the scenes saying we should take this we should do something with this i went backstage and i interviewed bowie at this show the radio station did nothing with the interview it just sat on a shelf it never aired it was pre-internet it was never shared on the internet I, it was literally just an exercise for me and an opportunity to interview bowie that the radio station didn't give a shit about what a waste do you still do you have it somewhere then I'm it dad. was worth it. it Who cares? I'm dad. Um, <laughs> Daddy, what's dad? <laughs> there, there, there are like three functional dad players in America at this point. And you don't have one? No. <laughs> Who has a dad player? It was, it was the music format of the future, John. But I mean, that, that was so radio at the time. No, we're, we're going to pass on this opportunity to interview Bowie at the Bowie Nine Inch Nails show because we, you know, we don't care about Bowie. Do yeah, something I, with it. I... I Find well, that was also reason. the time that was the, also right at the point that was like a culture shift, right? Where it was very out with the old yeah. and with the new. And it, so it was kind of an interesting time for Bowie to actually come back at that moment because it was like this weird, you know, I don't want to go backwards. I want to go forwards. But if Trent Reznor thinks he's cool, then I suppose he's cool. And all right, I'll do a little bit of digging and get into it. But I can see why they would say no. I can see it. It doesn't make it's it's embarrassing in hindsight for sure. But I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it. No regrets. That, hell that was no. about the coolest. I, you know, I don't nerd out. How, we, can I ask you a bunch of questions about this interview? Yeah. Okay. How was he? Because every time every interview that I've ever seen, um, he seems very deliberate. He was very charming. I, and, I don't nerd out or freak out about interviews. I don't, I would, we've both been doing this long enough that it's just not something that we do because he was growing up and still a favorite. I was, I was a little anxious before this one. I'm like, God, I hope I don't blow it. And it's hard to blow it when you grow up listening to someone like, you know, enough that even if you start to stammer, you know where to go next. Uh, but he walked to the room. He was utterly charming. He was friendly. He was delightful. He felt, he didn't feel as practiced or as how did you describe it deliberate deliberate he didn't feel that way um now that said i did an interview with him several years later on uh, i think it was the heathen tour and he was you know in a junket he I, it was a, an isdn junket and 
I got him like at the end of the day and he just wanted to get through it. You could tell it was a very perfunctory kind of passionless conversation. And that one sucked. Those junket interviews never go well. Well, I shouldn't say that they either are the best things ever because at, by the time you get to the artist, they're so out of it and looped that they'll just start saying dumb shit <laughs> and it's great. Or you're just one of the 42 people and the interview before you, the guy was asking David Bowie what his favorite color of socks were. And you're like, he's completely checked out by the yeah, time. Yeah, it's some, sh- some shock jock from Duluth. From Duluth. So you, you bang Mick Jagger? Yeah, right. <laughs> like there's, there's no palate cleanser after dealing with, you know, an asshole DJ like that. Right. Like, I just want to talk about Ziggy Stardust. You're like, that's not what this dude is here for. I'm uh-huh. sure he'll, he'll, he'll entertain it. That's what, like, they know what they're famous for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the worst. Those junkets are just terrible. So one final note on this Nine Inch Nails, Bowie, um, the, the outside tour. The set list Bowie had that night, about as unfriendly a set list as he could have created. I mean, this is, if you were a passive Bowie fan, if you were there for Nine Inch Nails thinking, oh yeah, David Bowie, I like some of his stuff, you walked away feeling completely unfulfilled. Jump, they say, look back in anger, the heart's filthy lesson, under pressure, Andy Warhol, which still for, to me feels like a, a super deep cut uh, from Hunky Dory. Outside, I mean, these are new songs, so you got to play the new songs. I have not been to Oxford Town. Breaking Glass, We Prick You. I mean, songs from Low, what in the world? The, these are not the obvious Bowie songs. The Man Who Sold the World and then Night Flights. That's it. That's the Bowie set. Not the most fulfilling for even a Bowie fan. You kind of wished he would have. He could have at least like thrown in the courtesy "Rebel, Rebel." I mean, that song still at least sounds pretty current, you know. Like, well, it's a rock anthem, and it's not yeah. like he didn't play that throughout his career. I mean, that was just that was a, a setless staple, and he just he went super, super deep and super obscure on that one, which I think was a bad move. For the I, I, comeback, yeah, that's not that's not how you want to, you know, return, right? Like, if you want to come back and make your mark, you want that to be the remember all of this. I, I think I apologized for him at the at the time, like, oh no, that was really interesting, and he's being an artist. Looking back, yeah, that's kind of a crap set list, <laughs> especially for for a stadium show. I mean, he's playing an outdoor arena. He's playing to twenty five thousand people. Like, you you gotta you gotta. Play stuff for the new kids, too. Accurate. So the 90s were interesting. It was a period of reinvention. We got Earthling in 1997. Also, a a couple big recognitions. You got him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. Um, And I didn't realize this, but I guess when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, launched, they did a list of the 500 most influential songs ever. Uh, Bowie, four of them made that list and i probably should have wrote down which four but <laughs> we can kind of uh, guess I, I would say would you like to fancy a guess because i'm sure you're going to get them it's not that hard. I, i'm sure we've talked about all of them so far <laughs> correct and then he had in 1997 the 50th anniversary concert the cure foo fighters billy corgan lou reed black francis who you may know as frank black or charles thompson the uh, third he's the dude from the pixies and sonic youth all performed at this show which I would give um, I would give your right arm to be able to <laughs> have seen that live. That would have been oh, for outrageous. Sure. Along the lines of the Pixies, I'll jump ahead just a little bit. He covered a Pixies song. 
on the Heathen album. He covered the song Cactus, which is on the first Pixies album. Uh, I think it's the best song on Heathen. And in the original version of Cactus, they say P-I-X-I-E-S, but on the Bowie version, it's D-A-V-I-D, which is just awesome. I get it. I get it. <laughs> as far as innovation goes, no, art- artistically, album-wise, there wasn't an album to me that was as good as Scary Monsters, but he was doing really cool shit. In 1998, he launched BowieNet. Now, in our current world of Patreon, Kickstarter, social media, where we all have almost unprecedented access to the people who make the music we consume, Bowie was so ahead of that. He was literally decades ahead of where where we are right now. He launched this service that included website, access to Bowie, videos, interviews, exclusive stuff. He had the vision for what we now currently enjoy. I don't think he gets enough credit. I mean, this really is the precursor to all these platforms we're on around the clock now. Yeah, I mean, again, he is five years ahead of the world. Mm-hmm. And he's always been, right? Uh, I was watching an interview with him um, before jumping on this podcast, and they, it was a question they asked him about Napster. And he goes, yeah, here's what's going to happen. He goes, the record labels are all going to fake getting really upset about this, but instead they're just going to band together and come up with ways to make this work to their advantage where you will pay a fee and it'll be available to everyone and Napster will just be one of many. He really said that? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he literally described Apple Music, Spotify, Pandora, the whole thing right out of the chute instantly like it's 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 almost creepy to to hear him like just break it down almost verbatim the only thing he missed was the guy from metallica would be the one to like sue him that was the only thing he missed that was it otherwise he like nailed it it was insane total visionary so the, the 21st century as we lead up to his last years and when he died a few years ago uh mostly quiet from bowie he put out heathen which I mentioned in 2002. And then we didn't hear from him for a while. There was a tour a couple years uh, after Heathen where he had to leave the stage because he had a heart attack. We didn't know it at the time. And that was really the first hint of health concerns that we, we saw unfold in the years that followed. He reappeared out of nowhere. I love the fact that he was able to do this. He came out with the next day in 2013. No one knew it was coming. He had all the musicians in his band essentially sign non-disclosure agreements and not, you know, basically swearing that they wouldn't leak that Bowie was working on something so that he could, in true Bowie fashion, just surprise the world. Yeah, and I wonder how maybe what he went through at the end of the 80s and into the 90s where it was, I mean, the amount of weight that comes with being David Bowie has to be immense right obviously and so to be able to kind of disappear and not have the world you know expecting anything and and have that like level of well the labels want to hear it before it's out or anything like that to be able to just for someone that big to be able to run and hide for a little while Mm -hmm. must have been and and you can hear it in the music it must have been incredibly liberating um, and, you know, of course, that leads into the final uh, bit of his musical career, which, again, is just absolutely incredible. It's crazy. It's incredible. The dude left on his own terms. I, I want to mention also that same year, 2013, 
his voice turned up on the song Reflector from the album Reflector by Arcade Fire, which is hands down one of my favorite Arcade Fire songs. It is just such such a cool sounding record. But he was getting sick. He He was not doing well. And in 2015, the off-Broadway production of Lazarus debuted. And that was the year when Bowie made his last public appearance. It was at opening night of Lazarus in 2015. And I, you know, I was a fan, but I wasn't aware. I mean, I don't think any of us had any clue how bad things were. I mean, I guess if you went to that opening night of Lazarus, maybe you had a hint. But I don't think any of us knew how bad things were for Bowie at that point. No, I mean... Uh... Even like his death was, I mean, everything about the end was so shocking and so Bowie, right? Like in, in, in hindsight, you go like, it was, I don't want to say it was perfect, but it was almost just, all right, I'm going to go now, you know, but I'm going to leave you with this. Yes. I mean, by the way. (laughs) So in 2016 on his birthday, he put out his 25th album, Black Star. The band he assembled for this, uh, Tony Visconti, a longtime collaborator, produced it the band he assembled wasn't a rock band he didn't want to make a rock album for this so it was a bunch of jazz players um it's this very haunting beautiful record two days after its release bowie died from liver cancer i was just getting excited like oh my god this is great a new bowie album out of nowhere then two days later i'm like what that's crazy and as it turned out he meant this album to be a parting gift for all of his fans I can't even imagine being able to do something like that. Like, you know, to be able to go, I'm going to, you know, this is my swan song and I know it and to yeah. drop it. And, and I mean, I'm sure he didn't like go, I'm going to drop and then I'm going to drop dead right after. Like, of course not. But like, there are moments, there are like perfect endings to things. Right. And when, when you think of, when you think of music, I think of, um, you know, hurt from Johnny, not from Johnny Cash, but Johnny Cash doing hurt. Mm-hmm. that was the perfect end you know like that video and the song itself and it's you know the story of, like, that song is kind of the story of johnny cash right like pretty self you know um self-harm for his whole life and and just this was one of those moments where it was devastating when it happened but i think i look at it now as a really beautiful moment it was, and just the idea of being able to call your shot on your way out the door. Yeah. That's that, that, so extraordinary. It is hard for me to watch the video for Lazarus because you see Bowie on a deathbed. He's got that gauze bandage over his eyes yeah. and, and black buttons where his eyes are. It's, uh, it, I, I kind of have my hair standing up on my arms as I'm talking about it. It's, it's knowing that he created that, knowing that he was on his way to checking out and that that's the the image he went with is is it's striking it's haunting it, it's there it's is a really good documentary i'm sure you've seen it if you haven't or if you're listening to this and haven't i think it's on hbo and it's it's i think it's called like the last 5 years um and it is if you've fallen out of love with bowie or you're going kind of like oh god yeah i used to love, i do love bowie like this will blow your mind it's so good so as we head toward the end of this, let's talk about some favorite songs. What are your favorite Bowie songs? Ay, ay, ay. Um, I went pretty generic with mine, but I'm not, I'm not upset about it. Um, 
I'm going to go with, uh, off the top of my head, I'll go Heroes. Um, for me, that song is, it's beautiful in its simplicity. I think there's like three chords in the whole thing, maybe four. There's like a bridge, I think. But I mean, it's just this chugging three chords over and over and over. And it's and there, just, there's that soaring guitar. Yeah, it's just, that riff is just perfect. And it, you know, there's like uplifting songs that you go, this is corny. And then there's uplifting songs that you're like, yeah, I'm going to go punch through a wall right now. This is amazing. <laughs> That's one of those to me. So Heroes goes on my list. Um, you want to go back and forth? Or you don't want me to rip off a couple? Just rip off, rip off what's on your list. All right. Uh, Space Oddity for me, because it's one of those first songs that I remember that was like a story as much as it was just a song in itself. So um, that song to me is always, I mean, anybody would say that like, that's an legend, legendary song. Also really cool in Portuguese. Um, we should have touched <laughs> on this there uh, in the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Movie, oh yeah. Um, Sue George is the actor in the movie who throughout the movie um, is featured uh, playing uh, a classical guitar, not on strings and singing Bowie songs in Portuguese. Um, there is. I'm so I, glad you I, brought that up. Yeah, dude. I saw him like six or seven years ago. He went on tour, dressed up in the Zisu outfit, and just performed the soundtrack. Oh, I bet that was he, amazing. He just, and he, he would tell stories about the movie, which, so you get Bill Murray's stories, which is great. And then he would play, you know, Rebel Rebel in Portuguese on this guitar. And it was incredible you can listen to that album it's out it's called the uh the life aquatic session it's all there sue george is his name and dude top 10 that's that was like my go to sleep album for like two years oh i love it yeah yeah yeah. all right give me a couple of yours from the more modern era he did a song in 1997 seven yeah it was on earthling it was called dead man walking on album, I think it's overproduced. I think it's it's missing something. There is a version of that song, Dead Man Walking, that he did on Conan. Uh, Reeves Gabrels joined him as an acoustic version. It stripped that song down to a point where I really understood it, and it, I really felt it. And it turned up on one of, uh, or a, it was a compilation, a Conan O'Brien music compilation called Live from 6A. That particular version of that song, I think, was one of the best songs he produced in the last 20 years of his life i i really it's 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 stark it's it's arresting dead man walking from conan going back to aladdin saying panic in detroit that mick ronson guitar riff name dropping Che Guevara, and uh, everything that went on in the motor city that that riff may be one of the most iconic david bowie riffs and that's still that that's a i'm not, I'm not turning this one down i'm turning this nothing but up as i'm listening it is so good uh, going back to Scary Monsters, the title track. I, I keep zeroing in on guitarists, but that Robert Fripp guitar and Bowie singing with that Cockney accent. And, and the lyrics, I think, are among Bowie's best, best. She had a horror of room. She was tired. You can't hide beat. When I looked in her eyes, they were blue, but nobody home. This idea of this woman who could have been a serial killer, who should have been a serial killer, but wasn't. Again, that album, if you listen in the modern day, sounds like it could have been released a couple of years ago. It still sounds edgy and cool and amazing. And really, uh, I listened to that the other night because I was going through trying to make my list, which this song actually also made my list as well. And it's, it's, listen to it again. It's the blueprint for Queens of the Stone Age. 
It's a Queens of the Stone Age song. Yeah, go listen to it. It's it's totally like like that's where that comes from. That's Um, interesting. And along those lines, I'll throw a couple more of mine in there. Um, Rebel Rebel, the best Rolling Stones song that the Rolling Stones didn't do. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, rounding out my list, uh, I I was going to go with changes, but I got to do I'm Afraid of Americans because that is what kind of brought me back into Bowie and coming out of the 80s stuff, which again kind of loses me a little bit to hear him do that. And just whatever genre he decides to do, he does it incredibly well. Um, that was like the reignition of the spark for me to go and get really into Bowie. Plus the music video is really cool. Oh yeah, for sure it is. Really cool. So David Bowie, RIP, died, born and died this week. Uh, we, we acknowledge both anniversaries. Uh, it seemed only appropriate that, that we dig in this week to, I mean, when you talk about the history of alternative, this guy helped build it. He really allowed alternative bands to be alternative. This is probably a conversation for another podcast, especially as we're saying our goodbyes, but is David Bowie the first alternative artist? The History of Alternative podcast is recorded at the 101 WKQX studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs. Stay in school. 